Our text today is from Matthew chapter 17 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear God's holy word. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this gospel that tells us the accounts of your son, Jesus, and here today, his glorification on the top of the mountain. And we pray that as we enter into this text today, that you would reveal Jesus even more to us, that we would know him and that you would make us more like him. Conform us to his image, we pray. Transform us to this same glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Someone once said, when you want to build a ship, do not begin by sending men into the forest to gather wood, cut boards, and distribute work, but rather awaken within the heart of man the desire for the vast and endless sea. That is to say... The best way to motivate people is to help them get their mind above individual small tasks and to inspire them to see how their work fits into the bigger picture. If you want to build a ship, don't talk about rigging and boards and, and cutting down trees. Inspire their hearts, it, it capture their hearts, awaken within them the desire for the vast and endless sea. See, people are motivated by a longing for something great. If, if all you focus on is the, the tedious minutia of manual labor, you may get a ship built, but you may get a ship that will just sail over the horizon and then fall apart because at that point, it's somebody else's problem. It's no longer our problem. And the people who slapped it together are still mentally Landlocked. They're not on board and they don't intend to be. But theoretically, if you awaken their hearts to a glorious vision of the possibilities of their, of their work, then uh, they will throw themselves into it, that at least theoretically. And there's a lot to admire in that, in that sentiment. Uh, it's good to cast a broad vision and inspire people in their work. But sooner or later, someone is going to actually need to chop down some trees. Somebody's gonna to need to mill some boards or you're never going to have a ship. See, it can be fairly easy to charm people with grand ideas and big plans. And whenever you do that, you'll certainly have some cynics and you'll have some scoffers and you'll have uh, critics, of course. Um, but anytime you talk something up, you can get a certain number of people on board with an exciting concept. 
do I want to sail on the endless sea? Sure I do. I would love that. That would be, that would be great. However, the reality is always that before we get to do that, someone has to sweat and someone has to skin their knuckles and someone has to bleed and someone has to get dirty. And it's at that stage of the process that it's much more difficult to get many takers. Most people would prefer if you would just invite them onto the boat when it's finished. Uh, that is how you uh, enrapture my heart with these, these adventurous visions. Well, in this section of Matthew's gospel, the Lord Jesus has pulled his disciples away from the crowds, away from the critics, to spend time with his men and to awaken within them, to, to inspire them with a clear vision of the future success of his church. And he has said it in the last chapter, the church is going to grow unabated in size and influence and presence. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the church will be the manifestation of King Jesus's authority on earth. All of these are promises. He establishes them in the promise of the sure victory of his mission and their work with him. But he doesn't leave them with the naive thought that, that all of this glory and victory is just going to fall into their laps. No, he says, this is only going to be accomplished through suffering and dying and resurrection. And it's going to start with the suffering of Messiah. Messiah must be rejected He's going to be accused falsely. He's going to suffer many things, and he's going to die. This starts with his suffering and then with his people following in his train, his people following close behind him as they deny themselves. And as they take up their cross, this is how all of these wonderful things will happen. So indeed, he awakens their hearts with the promise of victory, but he also explicitly states that this is going to be hard. And he calls them to do these hard things. He, he calls them to this, um, this mission because it's difficult. Not, not because it's easy, but that being a disciple is difficult. And he's upfront with that. Following Jesus will be met with resistance, strong resistance, both on the outside and from within, because following Jesus goes against the whole way of the world. When we follow the Lord Jesus, we first have to deny our flesh what it wants. Our, our sin nature wants um, uh, sin. Our sin nature wants everything that stands in rebellion to the Lord Jesus. And so we have to tell our deceitful hearts, no, you can't have that. No, you can't even want that. No, you can't desire that. No, you must not, must not go after that. So we have this internal conflict, and then we openly defy the outward expectations and the norms of the fallen world around us. This is tough work. We're always in conflict. We're in conflict internally, and we're in conflict externally. This is tough work. This is not easy to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus. And let's never pretend that it is. Let's, let's never pretend that this is very simple work especially since you and I live in an age where it is incredibly easy to avoid hard things. It's, it's easy to gain a false sense of peace for a time. It's, it's easy to put off maturation. 
there are structures and there are institutions in place that will allow you to simply exist, to absorb and, and to consume. You can eat without working. It's possible. Uh, you can get any number of things that are, are labeled human rights that are just, are just given to you if, if you want them, and you can get them without working. You can avoid anything that will put you in conflict. You can avoid anything that will stretch you, anything that will make you grow as a human being. You can be served and coddled and babied for a time, for a time. But then, at some point, life gets hard, real hard. Proverbs uh, 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's true. It starts off easy. The way of the transgressor starts off easy. Wide is the path of destruction. Wide is the way of immediate gratification. Needs are met instantly at the start, but it becomes the way of the transgressor, the way of the sinner, the way of the sluggard becomes hard. One day the bills of the sluggard must be paid. And you look around and there's nobody to pay those bills but you. On the other hand, the way of the righteous starts off hard. You see, the way of the transgressor begins easy and it gets hard. The way of the righteous starts off difficult. You must deny yourself. You must exercise self-control. You tell yourself, I can't have that. I can't do that. I must not go along with that. I must take up the cross and put off the works of darkness Put off the old ways, put off the old words, the old thoughts, put that all to death. That's hard. It starts off hard, but it gets easier. It gets easier as you exercise those muscles. You begin to learn how to withstand temptation. You begin to learn that you can withstand temptation, that you can control your thoughts and guard your heart and control your tongue. This is the way that Jesus invites his disciples to follow him. It's a way that begins with his own suffering and death, and then he invites his men to deny themselves and take up their crosses as well. We read that last week. And then we saw Peter's initial response to this was outrage and defiance. Peter had the gall to take Jesus aside and, and rebuke Jesus for what he was saying. Peter, Peter had strong words for Jesus there. He thought Jesus was way off the mark. This plan is ridiculous, and there's no way that death is going to accomplish the victory that Jesus had promised. Now, the Lord Jesus doesn't take Peter's rebuke lightly. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He calls his friend Satan because Peter's thought process is satanic. Peter's motives are satanic. His perspective is satanic. This is precisely the wrong response. You see, when Jesus reveals that the way of the kingdom of heaven is the way of suffering and death and resurrection, the appropriate response to that is not, well, we'll just find another way to manufacture glory for ourselves. Let's, let's develop our own plan that doesn't involve any sacrifice. No, that's not the right response. The right response is not, well, why don't we just stay out of trouble? Let's just stay safe. Let's not make any waves. Let's stay on the sidelines and keep out of it. Maybe that's what we'll do. No, that doesn't work either because Jesus says the only way to save your life is to lose it. If you want to lose your life, try to, try to save it. 
So the proper response is neither of those, and it's not outrage over the indignity of suffering and dying and getting angry over the possibility of injustice, the possibility that an innocent man is going to be falsely accused. That outrage, that's not the way. None of these are appropriate responses to this call of Jesus. The only proper response is to trust and obey, to deny yourself and take up your cross. And what that means is to trust the Lord Jesus, even if it looks like obedience is going to kill you. And we know this. So often, obedience to God, doing the thing you know that God requires you to do, that feels like it's going to kill you. Because obedience often means letting go of something that's precious to you. It costs something to obey God. And so often, the right thing to do feels like the worst thing to do. The right thing to do feels like the impossible thing. How can I, how can I do that? Because Satan wields the fear of death over our heads in such a way that we think that hard things are going to kill us, and that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. And by the way, that's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is to spend an eternity outside of the fellowship of the living God. That's the worst thing that can happen. Losing your life is not the worst thing that can happen. If you kill me, um, so I get a one-way ticket to go sit at the feet of Jesus. I don't know how that's a bad plan. I don't know how that's a bad idea. If that's the worst you can threaten me with, of course, we love our lives. We love, we love all the blessings of being human and living in the blessing of God on this earth. But if you take that away from me because I'm obeying God, then what, what is that? That's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing is spending an eternity apart from God. And so in those moments of fear, we are called to trust the Lord Jesus no matter what happens. We obey even if the way of obedience doesn't look like success, even if it doesn't look like prosperity, because God is sovereign and God is good and nothing that happens to us is ever going to change that. And he has promised to reward our faithfulness. Now, what happens next in the gospel confirms all of this. It confirms that God rewards the faithful and that the faithful will shine with his glory. So as we pick up Matthew 17, six days after the events we read about last week, six days later means this is the seventh day. This is a Sabbath. This is a day of rest and fellowship and glory. On this day, Jesus takes just three, just three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, he leads them up on a high mountain. Now, what high mountain might this have been this whole time? They've been around Caesarea Philippi, and I mentioned a few times that that's right at the base of Mount Hermon, which shows up in the Psalms. It shows up in the Old Testament. It's that mountain towering over Caesarea Philippi. And Matthew tells us that Jesus took these three disciples up on this high mountain, and that when they were together, Jesus is transfigured. What does that mean? What does transfigured mean? Well, the word there in the Greek is metamorpho. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like metamorphosis, right? It means to be transformed. It means to be changed. The same word is used in Romans 12. And mo most of you can quote this. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. Same word, transfigured, be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. You must be metamorphosized. You must be transformed. You must be transfigured. So Jesus was transformed. He was changed. And on this day, what was changed most notably was his 
appearance, we read. His face shone and his clothes became white as light. It reminds us of Psalm 104 where we read that Yahweh covers himself with light as a garment. It reminds us of how Moses' face glowed when he met with God at the top of Mount Sinai. When, when God gives Ezekiel, when the prophet Ezekiel gets that peak into heaven, everything is brightness. Uh, Ezekiel describes the appearance of great light, of great brightness when he looks into heaven. And so whenever, whenever we get these pictures of heaven, we get this incomprehensible brightness, this, this light. God is the source of light. In his presence, all the darkness flees and all the things that like to hide in the shadows flee from his presence. Light, his light, allows us to see and to think clearly, to see. Light brings clarity and light brings truth and wisdom. The scriptures say God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if you're glowing like Moses or if you're glowing like Jesus is here, that must mean that you've been in the presence of God. If you get close to the fire, you get warm. If you go stand in the water, you get wet. And if you get close to God, you glow. That's how, that's how that works. You, you reflect and you shine his glory. Um, also, these words light and glory often go together. If something is glorious, what do we mean by that? Well, um, glorious things are weighty. They are cherished. They're valuable. And most often, glorious things, glorious objects, reflect light, like precious gems, like precious metals, like oil that is burned for light, like oil that is used for anointing, uh, that oil catches light and reflects light, and it's, it's therefore glorious. Silver hair reflects light. This is, this shall be encouraged, don't cover up your, your gray hair. It's glorious. It reflects light better than other kinds of hair. Silver hair is glorious because it reflects light. Bald heads reflect light and are therefore <laughs> glorious. Anything that reflects light is glorious um, in this definition. The priest, when the priest stood before God and ministered before God in the holy place, he is covered with precious stones and his garment is sewed with gold threads and golden bells around the hem of his garment, and he's got a golden plate on the front of his turban. It's all reflective, and it's all glorious. So likewise here, Jesus' face and his garments are glowing. They're reflecting light, a white light, reflecting the glory and the light of his Father, which indicates that Jesus is acting within the good pleasure and the blessing and the fellowship of his father. And as Jesus is standing there glowing, all of a sudden Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking with Jesus. Uh, somehow Moses and Elijah are recognizable to the apostles. I've always wondered, how did the apostles know that that was Moses or know that that was Elijah? Presumably they'd never seen a painting of, of either of them. How do they know who they were? Well, maybe Jesus calls them by name. That would be the easiest uh, explanation. Maybe the descriptions, we do get a physical description of Elijah in the Old Testament. He's a hairy man. And we get uh, a, a description of Moses as well. He was a good-looking baby. I think we also read he's a good-looking man. Um, so we get a little bit of physical uh, appearance language in the Old Testament, but but maybe putting all this together, it's unmistakable to the apostles who these men 
are. The fact is, very obviously, Moses is there, Elijah is there, these two men that represent the law and the prophets, they're now talking with Jesus and they're in fellowship with Jesus, meaning that they're agreeable to and they're supportive of Jesus as the Messiah, despite everything that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the experts in the law and the prophets, say about what their expectations of Messiah is. Here, Moses and Elijah themselves are talking to Jesus and are in fellowship with him. Jesus has their endorsement. Jesus is not acting contrary to the law and the prophets. Uh, he, isn't, he isn't undermining Moses or Elijah, but he's right in line with them. So Peter gets so excited by all of this. Again, over these last couple chapters, anytime there's a silent moment, Peter is talking. You know somebody like that, right? It can't stand a silent moment. Can't just soak this up. You gotta be talking. And so Peter is excited by all this. And he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And when Luke and Mark tell this story in their gospels, they point out that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, he doesn't know what he's saying. Well, when you're in the middle of exciting events, it's hard to interpret things as they're happening. You need a little time and a little perspective. But Peter thinks the right thing right now is to build tabernacles, and he's not altogether wrong. I understand what Peter's thinking. He must have been thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles, which was this annual celebration. It's this yearly festival in Israel when all of Israel set up these little tabernacles, these little booths, these little makeshift dwellings, these huts, which was to remind them year by year of their time in the wilderness. It reminded them of the way that God provided for them when they were in the wilderness and how God made a way for them to go in and to take the land of promise. He fed them in the wilderness, he, he covered them, and, and then he delivered them. Um, and, and it pointed them forward to their greater deliverance, their, 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 the time when God would fulfill all of his promises to deliver them again, deliver them from sin and from death and from Satan, and he'll crush Satan's head under their feet. And so the Feast of Tabernacles pointed them backwards and it pointed them forward and the Feast of Tabernacles also pointed to the deliverance of all the nations. At the Feast of Tabernacles, they sacrificed 70 bulls over those days, one bull for every one of the nations listed in that table of nations in the book of Genesis. So 70 nations, 70 bulls were sacrificing on behalf of the whole world, were interceding to God on behalf of the whole world, and it points to the redemption of the whole world. And the prophet Zechariah, talked about the time when all the nations would go up year by year to worship Yahweh of hosts and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter has to be thinking, well, well yeah, this is, this is it. Here it is. Here's our deliverance. This is the fullness of everything we've been waiting for. It's, it's tabernacle time. This has got to be it. It's time to set up shrines and everybody's going to come to worship. But again, Jesus has been clear. This is not the end. After everything that Jesus has said, Peter is conveniently forgetting once again the inevitable death and suffering that Messiah must endure. So that means this transfiguration is not the end. It's just a foretaste, a preview of the resurrected Jesus. What, what Jesus is going to be like, what he's going to look like after the crucifixion, after his death and resurrection. This is God's way, and this is Jesus' way. He said, grab hold of this, men. Peter, James, and John, I need you to grab hold of this vision, because things are about to get 
very difficult. And in the midst of this turbulence and opposition and anguish and rejection and physical abuse that's headed your way, it is tempting to think that this is all for nothing. But remember what you see here on this mountain. Remember this Jesus. Remember who he is who's going through all of this. And then as if to drive this home, the voice of the Father thunders out of the cloud, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God the Father once again confirms that Jesus is doing exactly what he wants him to be doing. Jesus is not off track. He's not out of bounds. Jesus is even slightly confused. He is well pleasing to the Father. The Father couldn't be happier about what Jesus is doing. So, God says, you better hear him. And that means you better obey him. Don't just passively let his words wash over you. Don't pick and choose what you want to obey or what you want to believe. If you want any joy, if you want any blessing, you have to do what my son says. And the father says this as if to say, are you listening, Peter? Peter, especially, are you listening? Do you get it? Do you get what's happening here? You, you Peter, you rebuke my son as if what he has to say is up for debate. You rebuke my son as, as, if, as if everything's a negotiation. When Jesus speaks, the father says, I am speaking, so you must follow him. Well, the disciples hear this. They hear the voice of God speaking out of the cloud, and the disciples get turned inside out. They fall apart. They fall on their faces, and they're greatly afraid. By the way, that's what happens when you hear the voice of God. Like the people at Mount Sinai. Do you remember uh, when God spoke to the people and they heard the voice of God, and the people said, I don't care what you have to do, Moses. We don't ever want to hear that again. Don't ever let that happen again. Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to hear his voice again because it, it tore them apart to hear the voice of God. So, so when, people, when, when people tell you that God spoke to them, or when people tell you God told them to do this or that, uh, say, oh, oh really? God told you to do, like, like in the Bible, God told you because you read the Bible and then you knew what to do, right? And, then, and they'll say, no, 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 God spoke to me when I was in my car or, or God spoke to me when I was out on the lake. Oh, 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 oh did you fall on your face? I mean, did, 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 you, did your brain melt uh, when, you, when you heard God's voice? Uh, did your heart jump out of your chest? That, that's what happened, right? You uh, see, when you hear the audible voice of God, you fall apart, the, the only time you say God told me something is when you can point to it in the Bible. Otherwise, um, you're, you're, you're just making things up. So what, what just happened here? What, what just happened here in Matthew 17? You, you may have heard or you may have read at some point that the purpose of the transfiguration was for God to reveal the deity of Jesus to the apostles as if all this time Jesus was God in disguise and now God decides to show the apostles, no, no, Jesus is, is, is God. But, but Jesus never concealed God at any point in his ministry. His entire purpose, the entire purpose of Jesus was to reveal the Father. Jesus said, much earlier than this, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The whole time, uh, Jesus, is, has been, Jesus has been revealing the Father. The, so the transfiguration is not an unveiling of Christ's deity, the transfiguration is a revelation of Jesus's glorified humanity. 
God created man to reflect his glory, like, like Moses did, like Stephen did. Remember when Stephen looks into heaven, uh, into the heavens and his face shines like an angel. We're all made to shine this way, but, but sin has dulled us. The fall has muddied our countenance. We are made in the image of God, but we are, we're dirty mirrors. We're like, we're like the mirrors at the carnival. We're, we, we distort and we're, we, we uh, misshape the vision of, of God. Jesus is presented at the top of the mountain as the man who completely, fully reflects the glory of the Father. And he's the one who's going to lead all of us back into the full, undistorted reflection of God. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, when Paul writes, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. I'll give you two guesses what word he uses there when he says transformed. It's the same word that Matthew uses. It's transfigured. It's metamorpho. He says, we are being metamorphosized into the same image just as by the spirit of the Lord, he says. So, so Paul says, we're created to look like the transfigured Jesus. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, we, we will. And even though Peter struggled to put this all together on the day that it happened, many years later, Peter has time to reflect and put all this together and understand, and, and in Peter's second epistle, in 2 Peter 1.16, Peter writes this. He says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's reflecting on this event that we just read about. And so we ask Peter, well, what does all this mean? And Peter gives us the interpretation. He gives us what happened. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light which shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So what, what Peter is saying is that the ones who hear him and obey him are transfigured also. The people who hear him share in his glory and shine as well in, in, in our humanity. Uh, Deborah's saying in the book of Judges, Deborah's saying that those who love Yahweh are like the sun when it comes out in full strength. Daniel says that the righteous shine like stars in the heaven. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turns around to his people and he says, you are the light of the world. The light that Jesus shines with in the transfiguration is not the internal light of the deity that is in him. The light that Jesus shines with is the light of the Father reflected off of the glorified man, Jesus. This is glorified humanity, which we share in, which he shares with us when we deny ourselves and we carry our crosses with him and when we don't object to the call to follow him. This is the glory we radiate when, when we're not ashamed of him, when we're conformed to his image and, and he shares this glory with us. There's plenty to go around. He isn't threatened by our sharing in his glory. And he's not, he's not miserly with his glory. 
So, so what are we talking about? And in, in, in just thinking about our um, receiving this and, and the way we think about glory, uh, when, when we talk about glory, humanly speaking, what are we talking about? We're talking about weight and value. We're talking about meaning and significance. What does it mean for you to have glory? Well, well it means that you're taken seriously, right? It, it, we, we want to be heard. We want our work to have impact and influence. We want our work to last. We all desire respect. We desire meaningful friendships. We, we, we want rest and the ability to enjoy our work. All of this is taken up in the concept of glory. And all of this is true of God's glory, which he shares with us, that, that, that we share in. We share his weight and meaning and eternality and life and joy and communion. But apart from this concept of God's glory and his sharing of glory, when we think about it, when we think about glory, we tend to think about glory as a resource that is in limited supply. This is, this is the way it goes ordinarily. If, if you have glory, if you have recognition, if you have happiness, that must mean less for me. If, if you have glory and happiness, I have to bring you down a notch. I, I have to make sure that you don't get too uppity because if I praise you, that means less praise for me. If, if you have something I don't have or if you get to do something I don't get to do, that means more happiness for you and somehow less for me. This, this creates a competition. It creates an antagonism between us because we're always acting in ways that exalt ourselves and ways that simultaneously deflate others. We can only feel superior if we've made someone else feel inferior. This perspective is all over human nature and human behavior. And this perspective and this behavior damages families when children are put in a position to compete for their parents' affection, to compete for their parents' attention, when, when men think that the way to assert their position in the home and to get the respect they deserve is by disrespecting their wives. The way that I am exalted is by putting her down or, or wives think that the way they get what they want is by belittling their husbands and treating their husbands like a fool. The only way I can get what I want is to bring him down a notch. It creates these rivalries between fathers and sons, between mothers and daughters. Fathers are intimidated by their sons when their sons can do things they can't. By the way, I think it's wonderful and glorious when my son can do things that I can't do. He, 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 can, he can most certainly. He's got talents I don't have. And he's, he's got those because God has given me uh, the ability to provide a way for him to exercise those gifts. And it's, it's, not, it's not threatening. It's not intimidating. But in this competition mindset and thinking there's this small reserve of glory, we're intimidated. So we have to tear them down. Sinful thinking turns everything into a competition. People fight each other on the job and they spread rumors and sabotage each other's work because success for you means failure for me. That's how we think. Our entire culture is presently fueled by this, this rivalry and jealousy and discontentment. The social classes are, are divided by greed because more money for you means less for everybody else. So we need some outside authority to come redistribute the wealth, come make it all even and fair. Races are 
fooled into believing that there's more privilege for some races than others. And the only solution is to exalt one by violently tearing down the other. Men and women are jealous of each other's glory. And so they either want to ridicule and abuse the other or become them to steal their glory. No one is satisfied with with God's created order and the glory of their own sex. And I'm just scraping the surface. I'm just barely scratching the surface. We have this great raging tempest of discontentment built on the lie that there is a limited supply of glory and we have to fight each other to have it, to possess it. And at the transfiguration, Jesus shows us the glory of Yahweh reflected on the obedient man. Here is the man who is willing to obey the Father no matter what. Because of his obedience, because of the faithfulness of Jesus, he shines with a glory that has an infinite supply. The triune God is a never-ceasing fountain of glory. God shares glory among the members of the Godhead. The Father glorifies the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. The Son rejoices over the Father and the Spirit. They each rejoice over the works of the respective members of the Trinity. God is not selfish. He doesn't hoard glory. He shares it and abounds with it. And he invites us to share in his glory because the way God gets more glory is to give it away. And that's how God shares it and becomes even more glorious. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus shines with the glory of the Father. And here in this this story, he captures our hearts and he awakens our imaginations of what it would be like to be restored completely to what we were created to be, to live as the creatures that God made us to be. Jesus reflects the Father's glory because he's happy to obey the Father. Because Jesus does not want to take a detour around the hard things. And the apostles see the glory that is, a, that is bestowed on those who are willing to obey to the death. And so here both the apostles and we see clearly the way to glory, the way to the pleasure of the Father is the way through suffering and self-denial and sacrifice to do the hard things, to grow in strength and to grow in maturity and to grow in the image of the transfigured Jesus. Do you want glory, meaning, relevance, importance? Do you want it? It begins now. It begins by hearing Jesus and trusting and obeying him even when you think it's gonna kill him, especially when you think it's going to kill you. That's what I mean. you, You obey him even when you think it's gonna kill you even when you can't understand what's going on. Don't be afraid, trust and obey. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for this vision, this image of the transfigured Jesus. So may we desire this glory that he reflected, so may we be conformed to his image. Father, strengthen us by your spirit that we can say no to the flesh, no to our deceitful heart, to deny ourselves, and thus to reflect the glory of the obedient man, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.